trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where people who are serious about seeking out the truth gather to catch some glimpses of what that truth might look like. Now, notice I'm not definitively saying you will hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm going to share what I believe to be factual, credible, principle-based information as opposed to simply, you know, partisan bumper sticker slogans. But it's up to you to do the vetting. It's up to you to make the ultimate decision of whether or not this makes sense and is something you should incorporate into your worldview. There may be other voices out there that do that, and I'd say kudos to them, but uh, there are a lot of sources out there that are just like, well, as long as we're, you know, focusing on me, you believe me, you can trust everything I say. And, of course, then there's the uh, heritage media, which does not exist to inform you, but simply to keep you from getting too close to the truth. I'm urging you to seek the truth out on your own. Think clearly, think independently about everything, including what you hear or read from this program. I have some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. I just want to mention them so that you know that they're accessible through my show notes. You'll find them listed on my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com. Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and govern your crypto. I do appreciate them helping me to get the message out every day. I would appreciate you doing business with them, or if you don't need what they're offering at the moment, referring someone to do business with them. So I don't know if you're in, if you're seeing this, but uh, I, I see a lot of unhappiness right now. In fact, truth be told, I, I have to, to watch myself lest I get caught up in it too. And something that I am noticing, and this is particularly just speaking from my own vantage point, a lot of the unhappiness that we encounter seems to find its roots in a failure to appreciate what we have. Does that make sense? Do you ever find yourself, you know, following into falling into a doldrums where you uh, you're more worried about what's going to happen or what might happen or you know what could upset my relatively smooth sailing for the moment? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in motion right now. And I don't think it's an exaggeration. I don't think it's hyperbole to point out, you know, these are hard times for a lot of people. And every indication that I see right now seems to point to they are going to get harder before they get better. And so that can make us kind of want to reflexively cling to uh, what's what's familiar, what uh, what's tangible and what what can I what can I hold in my hands? What can I grip tightly that uh, won't slip away from me? I want to share with you an article. This is actually a commentary from Jeff Minnick, published on International... Uh, let me try that again. <laughs> it's published on intellectualtakeout.org. I'm just making up language as I go here. The goodness of gifts, the goodness and gifts of gratitude. Now, Jeff Minnick says, A young man I know drives to work from Front Royal to the traffic-tangled roads of Northern Virginia. And he recently told a mutual acquaintance that he uses that hour-long trek to prepare his mind for the day's task. Now, on the way home, however, 
he spends that same drive decompressing from work and readying himself to cheerfully greet his wife and young children. In fact, when he arrives at home, his first act is to tell his wife how much he appreciates all that she has done for their family that day. Now, you may be saying, okay, what's the big deal? Okay, Jeff Minnick says, look, I wish I had possessed this kind of wisdom when I was his age. In the movie Cool Hand Luke, the warden of the prison strikes an inmate, Luke, with his club, and then utters one of the film's best-known lines, what we got here is a failure to communicate. Well, Jeff Minnick says, today we often have a failure to appreciate. And he says, most of us, myself included, often fail to express our gratitude for the gifts bestowed on us by others. An employee goes above and beyond the call of duty, putting together a special report for her boss, delivering vital information well ahead of a deadline. But she receives no more recognition than a nod of the head. The wife, who has spent all day with the children, hands them over to her husband as soon as he steps through through the door without asking one question about his day. The grown children who receive money or gifts for their birthdays forget all about writing a thank you note or making a phone call of appreciation. Now, he says, in my case, I've frequently failed to say thank you for good deeds and gifts I've received at the hands of others. I've wished many times that I would have thanked my wife more often for her love and care for me and our children. He says, I wish I'd have told my mother before she died how grateful I was that she taught me the values of hard work, perseverance, tender love, and forgiveness. Jeff Minnick writes, I hope that others who have influenced me, teachers, employers, friends, even family members, know of my gratitude for the lessons they imparted and the help they provided. Now, he says, there are two things I've learned about gratitude in old age. First, when our loved ones die, and you wish you told them how much they'd done for you, it's too late. He says, as I write these words, I'm thinking of an old college professor and good friend who surely knew of his powerful impact on my life, but I never directly expressed my thanks to him before he died. Second, while those who have helped us are still alive, it's never too late to express our appreciation for them. He says, in my ninth grade year at the Southwest Junior High School in Forsyth County, North Carolina, Mr. Darden taught us a block class of literature and geography. He was an excellent teacher, and 30 years later, he says, when I began teaching, I recreated some of his projects in my own classes. After another 10 years of teaching, I wrote him a note of thanks for all he had done for us. He responded with a kind letter, happily surprised, I think, that someone had remembered his efforts, and he also encouraged me in my own teaching. So expressing our gratitude for a job well done or for a gift is really quite simple. Jeff Minnick says, suppose that that employee I mentioned above works overtime to get you the information you need. Pay your compliments on her hard work with a personal note or even some flowers as well as a spoken thank you. When a spouse returns at the end of a long day, offer them a word of appreciation. If Grandma, Uncle John, or anyone else sends you a gift, take the five minutes needed to write out a thank you note, address an envelope, slap on a stamp, and put it in the mailbox. There are plenty of websites explaining the great blessings of bestowing such appreciation, not just for the recipient of your appreciation, but for you as well. Jeff Minnick says expressing gratitude doesn't just help the receiver. It makes the givers healthier and happier. It deepens our relationships, even affects our physical health, 
allowing us to sleep better and increasing our energy levels. He says, when we sincerely offer such appreciation, we strengthen the bonds of our families, our enterprises, our communities, and even our country. But he says, even more importantly, it's the right thing to do. Now, it's quite possible I am the only person within earshot who really needed to hear this message, but I know for certain I'm not the only person who right now is feeling the increasing gravity of everything that's going on around us. I have concerns, and maybe those concerns are, are you know, directly related from hyper-focusing on a lot of this stuff and going, oh boy, oh boy, another article, another story, another thing to catalog exactly what's going on. I spend way too much time each day immersed in news, and yet it's kind of my job, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not like I can just totally put it off and, and, and blow it off. But I want you to know, I've put into practice what Jeff Minnick is saying. And, it, and I'm not as good at it as, as I would like to be, but it's something that I think that is, is extremely valid. And that is simply expressing gratitude every opportunity that you have. Some people may think that's a sign of weakness. I don't know where that attitude comes from, you know, where someone holds the door for you, you know, do you tell them thank you? I mean, look them in the eye and say, thank you, I appreciate that. Or do you just grunt? <laughs> you know, like, this is expected. Be quicker next time. It seems like the entitlement mentality, which unfortunately affects a good portion of our population, is one of the prime sources of unhappiness. Think about this. Do you know someone who has that entitlement mentality? So, you know, everybody owes me something. Everybody owes me. The world owes me. Why am I not getting what I want? Clock, clock, where's my hoss and pfeffer? For those who are Bugs Bunny fans. But the bottom line is that entitlement doesn't have to be a part of who we are. And I think it follows that to the people who have learned to set aside that sense of I'm owed something or, you know, why isn't the world catering to my needs? And simply look around with eyes of appreciation and recognition and awareness of everything that's going right in their lives. They tend to be the ones that can weather the storms. They tend to be the ones who actually are, you know, find it easy to show gratitude. And they tend to be the happiest and most well-adjusted. I mean, how strange, right? Who would have thought such a connection could exist? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. One of the things I absolutely love about what I do is uh, as much as I, you know, hunker down in my studio and put on my headphones and hide behind the microphone, I also get to meet some truly fascinating people. And I got to tip my hat to my friend James R. Harrigan, who is with the American Institute for Economic Research, for putting someone on my radar screen who I'm going to introduce to you today. His name is Daniel Asia. And Daniel, I'm going to let you tell a little bit about yourself, but let me welcome you to my show and tell you how happy I am to to be uh, meeting up with you. It's a pleasure to meet you. A pleasure to meet you. And any friend of James Harrigan is a friend of mine. So we're, we're friends right away. 
So he tells me that you are a composer, among other things, but I would like to, to get some background. Um, and you can even start with where you and James met, but, but tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. So that's got to start a little bit before the James Asia meeting. So I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, my mother was from New York and my father was from Seattle. And uh, when I was eight years old, like many kids, I was asked in school if I wanted to play an instrument. And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I went into the music teacher and she said, and I said, I'd, I'd really love to play clarinet. I don't know why. And she said, well, you have these two front teeth that protrude a little bit. That might be hard to create the embouchure for the clarinet. How about trombone? And I said, sure. Let me try the trombone. Now, I don't know if she was giving me a lot of hot air, if she'd already had enough clarinet players or what, you know, no idea. Anyway, I started playing the trombone when I was eight and I loved it. That's all I can tell you. It was like music was, became a very important part of my life along with playing baseball and tennis and that sort of stuff, like most kids. But I kept doing it, and I took private lessons and played in all-city bands and orchestra, and then finally got into uh, the Seattle Youth Symphony uh, when I was in uh, high school, finishing high school. And uh, I discovered that the, the life of a trombone player in an orchestra wasn't to my liking. You count 200 measures... And then you come in and the conductor yells at you because you're playing in some ridiculous key for the trombone. And yeah, it's a little tough, so give me a break. Um, I also had a wonderful two mentors that I'll mention. Um, Peter Siebert, who was at the Lakeside School uh, where I attended high school. Uh, by the way, my, my classmate was um, Paul Allen and the class right behind him was Bill Gates. So that was an interesting group oh, I to, bet. to go through school with. And, uh, and then another teacher named Jerry Gray. And Jerry was a fabulous jazz pianist. So I was doing a lot of classical stuff with Peter Siebert, who was really beginning the early music movement, along with others around the country, and then also studying jazz with, um, with Jerry. And from there, I went up to a place called Hampshire College, a radical experimental school where I studied music. And um, I said, European history because I spent a year studying the Holocaust and all of its manifestations. And I also studied at Amherst and at Smith College with wonderful teachers at both institutions. And then uh, finally uh, went off to the Yale School of Music for my master's where I studied composition and conducting. And from there it's kind of the life of a peripatetic musician into New York for three or four years, establishing a contemporary music ensemble that I ran there for many years, uh, heading off to Germany to study with a, a wacko Korean composer named Lee Sung-yoon in Berlin. This is West Berlin before the wall came down. And then coming back uh, with my wife and uh, having a baby in Seattle and hoping to find a job, which I did, and landed for five years at the Oberlin Conservatory as a conductor and then went off to London for a couple of years on a couple of nice fellowships. And then by then, having three kids when we were coming back and looking for another job. And guess what? Found one in Tucson, Arizona, at the University of Arizona, at the Fred Fox School of Music, as it's now called. And I've been here for about 34 years. Wow. So there you have it. That is the saga 
of my life. Not exactly a homebody by by anybody's estimation. And tell well, me, well, not a homebody. You're right. <laughs> But, you know, 34 years in one place, you know, I, I didn't assume I would be here as my last stop in my travel since we've been a lot of places. But here we are, and uh, you've got a studio. I'm, I'm talking to you from my studio, which, you know, has been a great place to write music for all that time. Yep. I, well, I... I have only recently become acquainted with you, and this is through our, our mutual friend, James R. Harrigan, who I believe is the, uh, is he the uh, editor-in-chief for American Institute for Economic Research? You know, you'll have to ask him, but that sounds good to me. If, if yeah, not, he's something like that. I'll give him the field promotion, grand poobah of, of AIER.org. But, but I follow... I follow their their material very closely because they are very credible, and I noticed that you are a contributor, actually, to AIER. Um, tell me a little bit about your meeting with James R. Harrigan, and then let's dive into a topic. Uh, we'll talk about the fine arts and, and, and what they mean to us, and, and in some ways how they're being co-opted by others with an agenda. But where did, where did you and James cross paths? So James and I, I think, met each other at a conference put on probably by the Bradley Foundation in Philadelphia, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It's a long time. And we immediately knew, we just looked at each other and said, I think you and I have to have coffee. Come on, let's sit down. And we did. And within just no more than 10 seconds, you know, we were diving into each other's lives, diving into each other's thinking. What are you doing here? You know, I... You're a composer? What's a composer doing at a Bradley Foundation conference? Give me a break. So, and we've kept in touch, you know, once every couple of years, we we talk to each other. And James has probably since then been in Iraq at a university there and been at a think tank up in Utah. And then he came down here to work for the Center for the Philosophy of Freedom run by my buddy David Schmitz. And uh, now he's working for AIER, as you mentioned, and he's working with me. We're doing stuff together. Let's let's shift gears and talk just a little bit about the fine arts. Now, you have a very, very strong background in the fine arts. And I know in the last couple of years, particularly with the COVID lockdowns, one of the big laments that I heard from people who whose voices I've come to trust is that uh, not only was it businesses being shut down and people being isolated, but they said one of the 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 uh, darkest blows that we were dealt was that in many cases the fine arts were being stifled. And Daniel, I just want to ask you, in a nutshell, what do the arts contribute to us that, that we just can't get anywhere else? So we as individual humans pretty much reside within our, our own heads. We operate in a fairly small sphere of community, generally. We have family structures, we have religious structures, communal structures, where we operate on a fairly profane, mundane level, as it were. We go about our lives. We have jobs, we clothe ourselves, we make money so we can eat, we raise our children. So what is it that really makes us human? How we animals do all of those things too? They don't make a, have a job, but they take care of their young and they live. But we are actually sent, sentient, conscious human beings 
who are able to look at the world around us and we're able to look at it with radical amazement, as Rabbi Heschel did say. We look at it with awe and we look at it with wonder. And how do we express those characteristics of our relationship to the world? It's through the arts, baby. It's through music, it's through dance, it's through visual art, it's through seeing the world through those capacities. Hold that thought, because when we come back, Daniel Asia and I are going to talk a little bit about not only what the arts have to offer, that was a great explanation, by the way, but we're going to talk about how, unfortunately, the arts are becoming part of the woke movement. And I want to get Daniel's take on this. Again, we're talking with Daniel Asia. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Daniel Asia, who is a composer among many other things. This guy's very talented and and multi-talented. And uh, Daniel, again, I'm grateful to have you on the show. Let's delve into wokeism and the arts. Because I love what the arts have to offer. What wokeism has to offer, I, I'll just admit I'm not that fond of it because <laughs> it feels like somebody's somebody is trying to pin me down and, and make me cry uncle. What is your take on, on, on wokeism? And for that matter, how is it finding its way into the fine arts? I love it that you can talk about that and actually laugh just a little bit because I have trouble, I have to admit. So wokeness, of course, suggests or says that the most important thing about us as human beings are our physical characteristics or our predilections in the domain of sex. Which is to say, wokeism wants us to look at whether we are black, white, or purple, whether we're heterosexual, gay, trans, bi, whatever other goes with the plus. Our veteran status, I don't know how that gets in there. Whether we're a Pacific Islander, uh, perhaps what religion we are, and then what have I left out? Anything that I've left out? All I know is as a straight white male, I, I am on the short end of the stick here. Well, I, I'm well, persona there, there non grata. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we did forget something because you're relatively young. We forgot about age. Ah. There's ageism <laughs> also. Uh, so we've got all of those. So it somehow suggests that everything that happens in the world, and that unfortunately includes the arts, somehow it's supposed to be looked first and foremost through this lens. Now, as a composer, I only know one thing, and I'll say it as, as the Duke said, the great Duke Ellington, hey, there's good music and there's bad music. That's it. Now, does good music only come from a particular kind of positioned person? Of course not. You know, it comes from anybody who is really talented 
and puts their rear end to the grindstone and works really hard. That's what makes great music. That's what makes great art. You know, it's Michelangelo lying on his back for 14 hours a day in the Sistine Chapel, painting on the ceiling. I mean, give me a break. It's Beethoven whose guts are coming apart, you know, still writing his last string quartets because he has something to say. So here's another bottom line way of putting this. The great philosopher Martin Buber talks about an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. It's not about an I-it relationship. It's not my talking to lots of people kind of casually and saying, you know, here's what I think, here's what we're doing, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, no. Art is the artist establishing an I-thou relationship, that same kind of relationship that the individual has with God that we forge with the individual human being. What is what is Beethoven doing? You'll excuse me, what is Asia doing? I'm not putting myself in the same category. I'm grabbing the individual listener by the throat and saying, God, I have something to say that I think you're going to love. It, it might make your day. It might make your week. What if it makes your life to realize that music can bring you such great joy, such great pleasure, such... Uh, such a great way of finding, you'll excuse me using this word, transcendence, right? Above our mundane existence. This is what we're supposed to be doing as human beings. We're supposed to be involved in culture in the largest sense of, uh, of what that means for us. We're supposed to partake of the best in music, the best in painting, the best in sculpture, the best in dance. We want to get to know what we want to experience. Experience it so that we can elevate ourselves as human beings because that's what the high, high culture and the fine arts do for us. I love it. And, and as, you're, as you're saying this, it, it occurs to me that what you're describing is the process of creation. Which, which is no light process. I mean, I, I look to God as a creator. I look to uh, those who create beauty through music, through art, through writing, whatever it may be. They're learning to create as well, Pre presumably for the same reasons that God creates things, which is to, to bless the people, you know, within their purview. So thank you. Let's go there because that sounds wonderful to me. So in my tradition, the Jewish tradition, one of the blessings that we say is thank you for God who is the creator of new things. Oh, I like that. Okay, now what, what, is that, what does that mean? I mean, in my sense, look, any artist worth his salt is working his butt off all the time. Okay, you just are. But you also know, you know that those pictures of Jordan as he's, he's soaring across space? And you think, no, no, impossible. He's got another 20 feet to go. He's not going to make it to the rim. And he does. Okay, the artist is in that space creating, and you don't actually know who's creating what you've just created. Where does that come from? Okay, atheists don't want to say that there's any anything further than just consciousness in the mind. I don't believe it because I'm an artist. I know. I just don't know where this stuff happens, how it comes out, how it works. 
I still don't. And I've been doing this for 40 some years, you know, or 50 some years already. My God, 50 years. And you know that when you're there, when you're in the zone, okay, the sports people use that. But guess what? It's not just for the sports people. More importantly, it's for the artist who, when you're in the zone, when you're creating, you lose that sense of space and you lose that sense of time and you lose that sense of individuality and you're you're there creating what is coming out of your soul. You know that there's something more. At least I do. And it's not and re- when you hear great music, when somebody hears a performance, when they're there in the audience, that's the experience that those performers and that conductor, if it's an that's what they're trying to bring to you is that that conversation that's coming out you, that material from that composer's mind that says, here's what I want you to experience because I find it so magnificent. You will too. You will too. And, and it's not something that needs to be reduced down to, okay, well, but what's the skin color or what group identity can we, you know, shoehorn this person into? It's it's a very individual ah, thing. It's not a matter really? of well, this is only legitimate because uh, you belong to this group, and I guess that's I, I, that's I'm my sorry. argument against wokeism. It's collectivism. It, it ignores the gifts of the individual and tries to put them into a collective, and then use that uh, that membership to either give them validation or deny them validation. You're you're exactly right, and I'm sorry I got off point. So what is the problem here? The, the basis of the problem is that art is all about the experience of the individual that's being gifted to his audience. And nobody cares what that, look what I tell my students, I don't care if you're black, white, purple, green, come from Mars, Afghanistan, Asia, um, I don't care your sexual predilections, I, you know, do you deliver, baby? Is the good music, is it stuff that grabs me? That's what this is about. So this wokeness is so antithetical to everything that drives the arts. I mean, it's the analogy that's closest to this is, is the Soviet Union, of course, where Shostakovich couldn't write what he wanted to write, but could only do it in a hidden way. Where, where the collective committee decided if your piece got played or didn't get played. And of course it would be rotten music or bad music that would please, uh, please Stalin, right? Because he wanted this to please the, quote, proletariat. Um, the problem, of course, here is the, the proletariat, guess what? People just like good music, too, also. If you play them great, great stuff... By living composers, they love it. Doesn't matter if they're educated or not educated. So wokeness is so idiotic. There's simply no other word for it. It is idiotic at its root, and it's going to destroy the arts as we know them if we can't counteract it. Daniel, I've got to have you back on the show. We are unfortunately up against the clock. We're talking with Daniel Asia. I'm going to have a link to your website, but I seriously want you back on the show. I think you and I have much more that we could discuss. We do indeed. That would be great fun. Okay, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's give a shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Now, the fact that I'm sharing this with you should be good news for anybody, not only within the state of Utah, but also within the state of Idaho, who is looking for a mortgage, from a VA loan to a traditional mortgage to a reverse mortgage. I want you to contact Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage, knowing with confidence that she's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. It's been a pretty competitive real estate market here for quite some time. Homes do not stay on the market for long. People are still offering, you know, the, the asking price plus cash above that just because uh, there's, there's a lot of competition, a lot of people coming here for some reason. I can only assume it's because there's, you know, a greater abundance of freedom. Well, count on Heather to get the job done for you, to get you the loan quickly and at the best rates possible. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Click the email link I provide in my show notes under my sponsors. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Nobody really likes being criticized, or at least, you know, unless you're kind of a masochist, it's, it's not fun for critics to be lining up to take shots at you. However... I have to say it's really refreshing to see people who can take that criticism and actually turn it into something positive. My friend Connor Boyack is one of those individuals, and uh, something happened just in the last few days that I thought was was wonderful and and very fitting as well. Because it turns out the only thing worse than being criticized, or the only thing better rather than being criticized, is when your critics bring you even greater exposure than you had before. Basically, you take all their negativity and it turns into a larger platform and a larger audience and more recognition because people are actually checking you out. Carrie McDonald, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, recounts what happened with, uh, with Connor Boyack's Tuttle Twins book series. CNN slams libertarian children's books, causing sales to surge. She says, last week... CNN published an opinion piece arguing that the right-wing children's entertainment complex is upon us. Prominently featured as a case in point were the Tuttle Twins children's books, created by Connor Boyack to offset the progressive propaganda that many children now confront in classrooms across the country. Now, I was working for Connor Boyack at the time when he was launching these books. And I, I really think his philosophy is right on. It's easier to train children in the proper principles of freedom and free market economics than it is to try to retrain adults who've been taught falsehoods for pretty much their whole lives. You get the kids' minds around this through easily relatable stories that apply the principles being taught, and it it becomes so much easier. Now, Kerry McDonald says the books which have sold more than 3.5 million copies weave in libertarian themes related to individual freedom, limited government, free markets, and entrepreneurship, and frequently highlight the work of great thinkers like Frederick Bastiat or F.A. Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and fee founder Leonard Reed. Nicole Hammer, a researcher at Columbia University with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project, in her CNN article says, The goal is to seal conservatives' children off from a broader culture, to protect them from, the, from supposed liberal indoctrination by getting a head start on conservative indoctrination. Now, Connor Boyack laughed when he read that. He said, I find it humorous that those in the left-dominated media are wringing their hands about a few of us doing what they've long been doing. 
The progressive mob has been infiltrating and leveraging pop culture, the school system, and entertainment outlets, and suddenly they're outraged when we're providing a counter-message to their myopic, woke worldview? He says they're clearly crocodile tears, faux outrage over something the left has long been up to. But Kerry writes, Boyack welcomes more criticism from left-leaning media sites because it boosts his sales. See, parents, it turns out, are clamoring for learning materials that offer different viewpoints and perspectives than what their children receive in their schools and throughout the broader culture. When the progressive magazine Current Affairs published a similar critique of the Tuttle Twins in the fall of 2020, Boyack sales soared. He sold more than 12,000 books from that piece alone using a special promotion code to track sales. So as of Monday of this week, Boyack said the CNN article was directly responsible for helping to sell more than 23,000 books in just a few days, nearly doubling the amount of sales generated by the Current Affairs article. Boyack told Kerry McDonald, these efforts to criticize our work only encourage fence-sitters and curious onlookers to take action, buy the books, and see for themselves what all the fuss is about. He said, our haters make for the greatest sales force I've ever found. If anyone else wants to attack our work and criticize the Tuttle Twins books, I'd really appreciate it. What a great attitude. Kerry says, indoctrination of young people into a left-leaning political worldview has become increasingly noticeable, especially as both curriculum and corporations have become overtly political in recent years. But it's hardly a new phenomenon. This is a multifaceted problem that's been festering and growing for decades, according to Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder in her recent uh, in a recent interview with Kerry on the Liberated podcast con- conversation. She's the author of the book Undoctrinate: How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Rule Our School Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. Now Kerrigan Snyder argues that students are increasingly having to self-censor and self-silence in both their K-12 through and college classrooms, if they happen to disagree with the dominant progressive cultural narrative. And she adds that teacher education programs are similarly skewed, often tying a student-teacher's academic achievement to a left-leaning, to left-leaning political activism. So books like the Tuttle Twins, as well as Boyack's entire suite of learning materials geared towards young people of all ages, offer a cultural counterweight. They help children and teens learn about different perspectives and a different societal vision. Boyack told Carrie McDonald, Parents need to recognize that we're in an ideological war and that our children's minds are ground zero for today's battle. And if parents don't recognize that this war is happening, that by default, they're going to lose. He said, once we're engaged in the fight, it's not enough to simply play defense, to screen the content our kids watch, shelter them from the crazies, put parental blocks on their devices, and hope for the best. We have to go on the offense. We have to be intentional about exposing our children to sound ideas, true facts, and a worldview grounded in reality and principle. That's how we win. That's why the Tuttle Twins books and cartoon series exist to help parents give their kids a foundational understanding of the ideas of a free society. End quote. Carrie says as more parents realize the ideas their children are comp- continuously exposed to and how they're often antithetical to the principles of a free society, well, it turns out they're eager to consume content that offers an alternative perspective. She says outlets such as CNN may be opposed to such content, but... Their opposition is good for business. Thanks, CNN, said Boyack. (laughs) 
What a perfect example of, oh, life is going to throw some lemons at you. Well, catch every one of them, make some sweet lemonade and turn around and sell it. Because that's what entrepreneurs will do. And please understand, this is not just about, oh, these book sales, they're making Boyack a rich man. Again, I worked with him at Libertas Institute, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to sing Connor's praises here for a moment. Whatever you may think of Connor Boyack, he is definitely one of the most effective voices in moving the needle toward freedom that I know. And he is one of the hardest working people that I know. Nobody in that office, and they were all exceptionally hardworking people, nobody worked harder than he did. But it ain't about the money, and it never has been. And what, uh, whatever proceeds are generated from those book sales are put right back into the organization to build the organization and to grow it, which he has done remarkably, and to create even more resources for teaching people the ideas of freedom teaching children through the Tuttle Twin series, which I don't know if you've seen the cartoon series, but it's it's really well done. With some help and input from the, uh, the I was going to say infamous, but I mean this in the best possible sense, the Harmon Brothers and, and their, uh, their amazing advertising prowess. So if you've been feeling discouraged and feeling like, man, you know, you know, all the propaganda organs out there fighting against freedom and telling us we're on the fringe and whatnot, well, yeah, they are doing that, but... Please understand that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give credit to God. God, in his wisdom, has lined up some very serious players on the side of freedom, and they are making a difference. And one of the clearest examples of how that difference is being made can be seen when critiques and, and criticism and the things that are meant to try to marginalize and, and, and turn people off to these ideas actually end up pushing more people toward them. I used to sit across the desk from my general manager as his hair slowly fell out. And he would say, oh, Brian, people are, you know, I've got people trying to boycott your show. Oh, you know, he was stressed. And, and it's true. People were upset about things I was talking about and wanting to boycott. But the funny thing was, every time a boycott came, every time the critics would rally, my audience grew. Because they were drawing attention. And there were just enough people out there who would tune in and say, is this guy really the radical that I've heard that he is? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Something you're going to find about this program is that there is no implied agreement that you must agree with everything I say or you're some kind of dummy. You and I both know full well you are no dummy. What you likely are is an individual who is looking for a better understanding of the world around you to better understand not only your place in that world, but also what you can do in response to a lot of things that are, you know, seemingly out of our control. So if you're looking for some encouragement to better know who you are, what you stand for, as well as, you know, a very strong push to think as clearly and independently as possible, yes, this is the place where you will find exactly that kind of content. 
And, of course, you will also be invited to come rebel in wrong think with your fellow wrong thinkers and claim your heritage, heritage as a free individual. But most importantly, I want you to make the difference you were born to make. Our program is brought to you in part by Dixie Chiropractic. You can go to their website, DixieChiro.com. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. Three in particular, three areas in particular that I want to, uh, to address here in, in that if you are someone who has been injured in a car accident, you need to talk to Dr. Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. If you have bulging herniated discs, again, Dr. Wagner is there to help you. And you might want to check out their $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage, or if you are dealing with neuropathy, check out their $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Go to DixieCairo.com. When you are talking to them, scheduling your appointment, please mention that you heard this on my program. They'll appreciate knowing that the message reached you. I'll appreciate you doing business with one of my wonderful sponsors. Well, it should be apparent that harder times are coming. And I'm not saying this to be fatalist. I'm just saying... It's, it's, it's a fact. Let's face the facts and let's, let's show some courage as we move forward. Things are tough right now. They are getting tougher. There's a lot of stuff happening right now that appears to... Um, it's, we're going to see some pretty dramatic shifts sooner rather than later. So the question I have for you is, would you rather live as a sheep or as a lion? Got a great article here from Alan Stevo. And listen to this title. If you have problems trusting, you will have problems living a life of freedom. Say what? Listen to this. He says, as the regime around us falls apart, Americans and all people, for that matter, will increasingly look for more trustworthy leaders to turn to for answers. This is where you come in. Now, he says, my job here is to rouse lions. Your job is to be that lion. Your job is to be that person who walks through the day unable to do anything but be his free self. Now, he says, in all likelihood, it's the most natural thing you've ever done. It probably has been what you've always done. It's probably the easiest job anyone has asked you to do to live life as freely as you can each and every day. And as simple as that sounds, the level of authenticity from a lion like you is exactly what's needed to get us out of this mess. Now, Alan Stevo says, you may not be able to change the world overnight, but through your own free, lion-like behavior, you can deeply impact your life, your home, and the community around you. That is to say, you can change the world as you know it. Now, specifically, he's written about three groups of people who tend to form at times like these and who exist through all periods of time. He says, I speak of a lion as opposed to a more hyena-like person or a more sheep-like person. But all three exist in all periods of time. It's the lion that determines the trajectory of history based on whether he is awake or asleep. And he breaks it down for us. So how does a hyena behave? Well, hyenas spend their days looking for who to take advantage of. Hyenas are plentiful in our era and are constantly presented in the media as people you are assured you can trust. When allowed to run a society, they do the most untrustworthy things. This takes place when the lions choose to sleep rather than when lions roam their territory. The mere presence of awake lions makes the hyena's control of society impossible. Next, he talks about how sheep behave. Now, the more sheep-like folks are the biggest mass of people in a society. And these are generally people who are just looking for who to follow. Sheep spend a great deal of time examining who is trustworthy. 
From one moment to the next, they're skittishly looking about for the best leader. Now, notably, this may leave a sheep-like person following one group of people one minute and a totally different group the next minute. And it's not necessarily a contradiction, since the values involved are not as important to most sheep-like people as that sense of security, even around following a seemingly trustworthy person. So how does a lion behave? Well, lions notably are not specifically trying to get anyone to trust them. That's something the hyenas and sheep are busy concerning themselves with. The lions are just trying to live more free lives, and this brings about a notable conflict. The hyenas are looking for people to devour or control, and they accordingly specialize in looking trustworthy to others in order to get their way. The sheep are looking for people to trust, and they're accordingly gullible because they often seek shortcuts to quickly find comfort in trusting a leader, even though such a leader is as untrustworthy as they come. The need to always be following a leader undermines the sheep-like pursuit of safety. It brings the hyenas great happiness that the lions do not care more about being good leaders. It brings the sheep great frustration that the lions don't care more about being good leaders. In fact, such needs as who is trustworthy to follow tends to mean so little to a lion that he doesn't even want to play such a game. He happily leaves it for the sheep and the hyenas to play with each other. The lion is focused on being asleep at the job, where many lions are today, in which case he is focused on living his own life free and by himself. Or lions focused on being on the prowl, roving his territory, in which case he too is is living his own free life, rather. But by being awake and living his own free life, a lion spreads freedom better than anyone else in society can. In fact, the sheep only ever experience freedom when following a lion. And a hyena can only ever experience freedom when at the mercy of a lion. And again, neither of these details tend to concern a lion because he's just out there doing his own free thing. So focusing on trust prevents you from achieving freedom. He says all of this is to illustrate a detail that tends to be true in life. If trust is a concept you're stuck on, then freedom is probably not an attribute that you can fully embrace. The lion has moved beyond such a worry, or perhaps never even had it. Asking, how do I get others to trust me, or who do I trust, misses the nature of freedom. Freedom is grounded enough to be able to not fear the consequences of not being able to trust your fellow man. The free man will be fine whether or not he succeeds in developing that trust in others. The trust is not primary, but secondary. And freedom is also grounded enough to be able to not fear the consequences of being unable to be trusted by your fellow man. The free man will be fine whether or not others trust him. Being trusted by others is not primary but secondary. Only in the midst of having little concern for trust is freedom obtainable. Man, I hope that hits you like it hits me. See, this is not to promote the lion as a loner. Far from that. In the midst of that behavior in which one is neither needy for trust nor needy to be trusted, very solid relationships can be built on the firmest of footing. There are plenty of foundations that lions build upon. Alan Stevo says, I've proverbially built many little towers in life on all manner of foundations. And he says, time and time again, I find the most important to me is grounding myself upon God. That's the most stable foundation I've ever known. It's so stable that the contrast between trust and freedom is apparent. If trust is a primary concern, freedom is virtually inaccessible. So, faith or fear? For a hyena or sheep, faith that freedom will become unobtainable 
will, will come rather becomes unobtainable because one is busily occupied on the topic of who do I trust or who do I get to trust me? And he says, for a sheep-like person, trust is a pathway to security and other life-affirming characteristics. Sheep desire to trust as quickly as they can. This can be seen in the prevalence of sexual promiscuity. It's seen in the adoration of the most undeserving political and cultural figures. It is trust for the sake of trust. The harm one does to oneself by being so needy to trust is vast. Now, for the hyena-like person, being trustworthy is something to virtue signal in order to have influence. The extent of virtue signaling is, in this era, of course, important. The absence of true leadership and the absence of actual virtue, mere signaling is all that people really need in order to convince most people, in the short term, that they are the real deal. And again, sexual promiscuity is notable as well as adoration of figures who do not deserve it. Practices such as, such as neuro-linguistic programming or pickup artistry become welcome shortcuts. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because we are coming up on our first commercial break of the hour. But does this grab your attention? Does this make you kind of wonder, huh, am I one of those sheep? Am I a hyena? Am I a lion? Actually, if you're a lion, you don't really care. <laughs> you're already doing your thing and just determined, I'm going to live my life as freely as I can. But it's kind of cool to think about, uh, well, what, which one of those groups would I find myself most comfortable in? I know what my answer would be, but what would your answer be? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. I've got them listed right there under my sponsors in today's show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I don't want you just to visit their website, though. This is particularly for my listeners in southern Utah. If you or someone you love enjoys creating things, particularly through sewing, through embroidery, through quilting, Sewing and Quilting Center is the place to go. Family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. In that time, it has only changed hands three times. And Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners, some of the finest people you will ever meet. They are there to take care of every conceivable need you would have from sewing machines, embroidery machines, long-arm quilting machines, all the necessary supplies, the service to back up anything that they sell, and even to fix machines that they haven't sold, and more importantly, the training in how to use those machines to the best of your ability. You can't lose so if you or someone you know has interest in the sewing arts, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Please visit them. Please tell them that their message has reached your ears. Better still, take that further step in self-reliance and pick up a machine from them and learn how to use it. Back to Alan Stevo's article. If you have problems trusting, you will have problems living a life of freedom. And he talks about this trade-off between sheep and hyenas. Remember, sheep seek to trust as quickly as they can. Hyenas seek to be trusted as quickly as they can. So there's often a societal trade where the lion, when there is often then a societal trade when lions are asleep. Left to their own devices, hyenas are going to look for people to take advantage of, and the sheep will look for people with trustworthy qualities. Now, of course, the hyenas will happily feign trustworthiness if it means they can take advantage of another. 
A sheep will happily let another take advantage of him if it means he can get comfortable in an environment in which all the right amount of virtue signaling around trust and security is provided. I mean, are you, are you seeing the images of politicians, right, campaigning and clamoring for re-election? Now, there is a limit to that sheep and hyena society. That little cozy relationship, that symbiotic relationship, only makes so much sense till you factor in two things. Number one, hyenas, unable to truly deliver on what's fundamentally needed, fail and create crisis. And number two, lions exist. So, first of all, the failure of hyenas. Eventually, the hyenas run out of room to take advantage of the sheep, and they push things too far, proving themselves so very untrustworthy in the eyes of all watching. Crisis occurs as hyena leaders, each one more untrustworthy than the one prior, jockey for influence. Leaders can, at a societal level or a local level or a personal level, can can be present, but the fundamentals of that undeserved trust are very similar. They have nothing of substance to provide, and society increasingly finds itself in a mess. Again, this is the political class in a nutshell. And that crisis that they create, will rouse a lion from sleep. So, let's talk about the existence of a lion. You might be able to imagine that if sheep and hyena are seemingly comfortable together, the presence of a lion on the prowl is quite disruptive. Alan Stevo says in the long term, the truth is only a lion can ever provide the leadership a society needs. Only a lion can live free and create the structure that allows both freedom and security to others. It's exactly what the mass of people or the sheep want. Yet the lion refuses to placate them with phony shows of leadership. To even behave such a way welcomes the hyena spirit in. It shortchanges the natural potential growth that happens when a lion seeks to placate and destabilizes the potential future of the relationship. A lion is more likely to say, if you need phony shows of leadership to see why I'm better than a hyena, then I want nothing to do with you. You get that? A lion doesn't need your approval. So what does this mean in our current context? To read this in the context of our current climate, a lion will say, if you need phony shows of leadership to see why I'm better than a Tony Fauci, Bill Gates, or Klaus Schwab, then I want nothing to do with you. Now, that doesn't work for the sheep in the short term because they need reassurances. The hyena will happily provide those reassurances. This is despite the fact that the hyena, number one, lacks a backbone. Number two, lacks a moral compass. Number three, has no obedience to values. Number four, cannot lead in all but the most shallow, stilted, carefully studied, book knowledge, MBA class obtained, slithery definitions of the concept. Number five, will say anything that needs to be said to survive just like a politician. Uh, Number six will say anything that needs to be said to take advantage of every scenario for his own benefit. Hmm? And number seven, quite literally seeks to devour the very people who are foolish enough to trust him to lead. So other than the fact that the hyena is the very last person that anyone should follow, the hyena is really a great leader. Sheep end up following the hyena and end up getting all their short-term needs for security met. There's a lot of undeserved confidence in that equation. So why is the lion seen as a threat? Well, a lion living his own free life is clearly a threat to the hyena and can easily be seen as a problem to the sheep. He's different. He stands out. He's being free. He refuses to follow the rules that everyone else obediently follows. He knows the hyena has no authority over him. 
the great mass of people can be easily convinced that the lion is the enemy in the short term, when in fact, the lion is the only long-term leader that ever makes sense to follow. The roaming lion can easily be made into an enemy by sheep and hyena alike. The sleeping lion, as well, can also be seen as a threat. And get this, the sheep often know no better. Those who do want to put short-term impressions of security before all else, and they often carry a knee-jerk belief that freedom is the enemy of security, rather than seeing the truth that freedom is the enabler of all manner of good things that allow security to be possible. The hyena sees this clearly and knows that empty words and superficial attempts at security are the best a hyena can provide. So the hyena is naturally quite threatened by the lion. The sheep see the lion as a killjoy in the short term. His very presence shakes up the comfort of the status quo. The presence of the lion leaves the uneasy feeling that something is wrong. And the undiscerning sheep, having no idea what that could be, pays no heed to the, to the hyena preying on the herd, but insists the existence of the roaming lion with its toxic, outmoded, and patriarchal notions like standards, values, or conscience could be the only possible explanation of what is wrong. Doesn't that just sound familiar? Does that not just describe how our society tends to, to see these different groups? Now, Alan Stevo says, ultimately, the lion doesn't care what the other two think. As long as they stay out of his way. And so he says, dear lion, if you can live your life as freely as possible, grounded on good foundation, ignoring the evil cackles of the hyenas and the frightened bleating of the sheep, if you can stay focused on how you can live the most free life possible, you will ripple out freedom around you as you win this day. I don't know why that message resonates so strongly with me, but I think he is absolutely right. I think Alan Stevo nails it. It doesn't require some big political victory. It doesn't require putting together some huge coalition of people to, we're going to solve this problem all together and we're going to make this thing go away once and for all. In reality, if you want to have a measurable impact on the cause of liberty, if you want to be a living, walking billboard of freedom, you don't have to organize public meetings. You don't have to, you know, start your own show. You don't have to go out there and run for office. All you have to do is live your life with confidence and with freedom. And the influence will radiate off you as surely as ripples radiate outward from a pebble thrown into a pond. I know, it's hard to believe and people want to discount, well, but I'm just one person, how could this possibly work? Think about your circle of influence. Think about the people in your life who are watching you or or looking to you for a sense of confidence and a sense of steadiness as everything around them gets shakier and shakier. You may not be aware of it. In fact, most of the time we aren't aware of the influence that we're carrying into the lives of others. Until somebody points out, hey, you are a bad influence. Okay. But you can also be a good influence, and let's focus on that. Choosing to live as a person who will be as free as possible no matter where he or she is is a very positive thing that you can do for the world starting right this moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. And I'm very, very happy to have them as a sponsor. I first met Spencer Worthington quite a few years ago. One of those people that I just, just admired, and I couldn't even explain why. The more I've got to know him, though, the more I realize this is a guy who is a doer. He is a can-do individual, and wherever he happens to be, the world is a better place at that moment. The fact that he built and has created this this ammunition company, creating high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. He built it from the ground up. He employs people right there in your community, and just he's, he's doing a marvelous job. I'm very proud to know him, and I would encourage you. If you need ammunition, if you're into the shooting sports, if you are learning about self-defense, ammo is how you convert money into skill. Talk to HSL Ammo. Get what you need. Might even set a little bit aside as a precious metal for a rainy day. Well, I don't know how much sleep you've been losing over global warming or climate change, but, uh, you know, it's one of the many threats that is leveraged to kind of get us all moving in the same direction, you know, to get the, the sheep herded into the right corner of the corral. Well, Paul Rosenberg says, um, you know, we're a third of a century into global warming. That's a pretty fair amount of time. Maybe we could actually start drawing some conclusions. He says, it was in 1988 that I first heard of global warming. And seeing that we'd recently emerged from a decade-long cold spell, it came as something of a surprise. But he said, I didn't think much of it one way or another, as I had by that time learned to ignore the pay-attention-to-me class. He says, the next time I thought of it was a couple of years later when I ran into Larry Abraham's article on the greening of the Reds. And he says, that caught my attention, and as I recall, it got a lot of things right. Now, since then, he says, I could barely avoid the topic as it mounted an assault on the minds of billions of people. It has become, to state it very bluntly, a replacement religion for a West that has abandoned Christianity. It's been taught to school children, first in Europe and now in North America, almost as a catechism. They call it climate change these days. Global warming was simply too vulnerable a term. But the dogma's the same. Humans bad, freedoms bad, markets very bad, nature divine, governments the sword of righteousness. But he says the problem for the catechists is a large one. The much-promised consequences simply aren't happening. We were told back in 88 that over the next century, all sorts of very obvious things would happen, islands sinking below the ocean with all their inhabitants drowning and so on. Hmm... Then, of course, a variety of actors and politicians scrambled for relevance by championing the cause. They, too, made predictions, nearly all of which have been spectacular failures. Hmm, again. He says the crazy thing is global warming would be a very good thing. A warmer planet means better harvest and and more food is very, very good. On top of that, he says, and this may really bake your noodle, we could probably use more carbon dioxide, not less. Now he goes, I know that's the wildest of heresies, but we're far below the optimal for vegetation. Now he says, I'm going to continue with my experiences since I think they're useful. In the early 1990s, he says, in the course of my work, I did a lot of research on alternative energy sources, which brought me directly into the global warming issue. And he says, what I found was that the support for it was full of holes. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'm not officially an engineer, but I did engineering work for many years, and I learned to examine things as an engineer. And so when I looked at the global warming literature, I had no problem rejecting it. Once you get past the emotional veneer, 
there wasn't much there. Everything was a projection produced by an echo chamber. Then, as he's written about previously, he says, I was able to attend the big UN climate change meetings, two years running. He says, what I saw there was a convention of publicity seekers and money grabbers. Aside from a few more failed predictions, it provided me with little or nothing. Not long after, he says, I enjoyed a dinner with the late Fred Singer, who was a very serious scientist and a very great opponent of the global warming industry. He says, the conversation didn't particularly convince me of anything, but it did connect me with the fact that solar radiation is by far the greatest factor in weather on Earth, a fact that is ignored by the catechism instructors. Now, he says there's more to say on this. In fact, he links to apocalyptic predictions going back to the 1960s. But the point is made. By this time, we should be seeing plenty of real-life effects. But instead, we're only seeing more documents and assertions. Meanwhile, he says it was snowing this morning in April. So he says we're living through a string of manias. The climate change religion is one in a long string of manias promulgated by TV and social media. And so long as people remain plugged into that real-life matrix, they'll follow its voice almost anywhere. And they'll consider anyone not following to be both deluded and joined to evil. That's the binary emotional structure of the era. And so he says, if you could read this article without freaking out and deciding that I'm a dangerous madman, for which I thank you, please consider how you were able to get out or stay out of the dark parade. And then once you understand it fairly well, start helping others to get out. It will be a slow process, and you'll be called a lot of names along the way. But he says it's a necessary thing, a humane, compassionate thing. Good luck. By the way, if you want to really tap into a great resource for better understanding the greatest factor in weather on Earth... Suspicious Observers YouTube channel. I won't have a chance to throw a link into today's show notes. I will throw one in. Um, I, I'm actually thinking about adding it to my resources for wrong thinkers, but spaceweathernews.com is also an offshoot of Suspicious Observers, but five-minute daily videos tell you what's going on in the heliosphere, and it's remarkable how much it affects what's going on right here on planet Earth, as well as all the other planets in our solar system. Truly fascinating stuff. All right, got to shift gears here. Got to cover a couple more things. Time is running. I know you've heard talk about a convention of the states, right? Proposals for a convention of states to rewrite the Constitution, to fix the problems with the Constitution, to make sure government obeys. They've been around for a long time, at least. I'm thinking, you know, the last 30 years I've been aware of them. Matt Rowe makes a very solid case that any deficiency is in our current national character, not in the Constitution itself. He says many folks calling for a convention of states to solve our country's current political problems are making a fatal assumption about the purpose of a convention of states. They see this as a powerful mechanism for undoing political corruption at the federal level. But he says, unfortunately, a convention of states is not the tool to handle this particular problem. And under current conditions, it could very easily lead to a very different U.S. Constitution that actually supports rather than prohibits common government activities. First, he says, what we want changed is typically not clearly defined. Our Convention of State supporters hoping for term limits, congressional and judicial, 
the abolition of federal agencies, changing the Interstate Commerce Clause, or altering the Second Amendment? Well, let's assume that these are just some examples they would cite. He says, I won't go into them here, but these, each of these and many other issues were thoroughly considered and documented by the founders who had very clear explanation, explanations rather, for why they chose to write the Constitution the way they did. Second, the several states have not surrendered these powers to the federal government, and this is a very important point. Rather, by force of interpretation and the general lack of constitutional knowledge in our country, the federal government has usurped these powers a little at a time, clearly in violation of the constitutional limits placed on that government. In fact, he says, let me repeat, clearly in violation of the constitutional limits placed on that government. Now, of course, there were those who raised the red flag at the time, and likely every time this happened, the threat was understood in great depth and detail. He actually quotes uh, F.A. Hayek from The Road to Serfdom, published back in 1945. The character of the danger, if it is, if, if possible, is rather, if possible, even less understood here in the United States than it was in Germany. The supreme tragedy is still not seen that in Germany, it was largely people of goodwill who, by their socialist policies, prepared the way for the forces which stand for everything they detest. Nonetheless, he says, though, by force of persuasion, ignorance, criminal intent, or apathy, the often left-leaning and self-serving bureaucrats, business leaders, and politicians carried the day. What exactly do proponents think will happen from a convention of states? Well, a runaway convention is completely possible. There is no rule stated in Article 5 of the Constitution limiting the scope of a convention of states. The fact that three-quarters of the several states have not agreed on a purpose for the convention of states is not the point. In fact, there is evidence indicating the founders fully expected any convention of states to operate exactly as the original constitutional convention. They clearly placed all the power in the people, and those people who are empowered to participate in a convention of states have no limitations other than the later, ramif- later ratification of proposed amendments by three-quarters of the several states. In other words, anything is possible except probably a limited convention of states. We're going to come back to this in a few moments, but I know this sparks some very strong feelings on both sides of the issue. I do agree with his take, though, that the deficiency is not in the Constitution itself. It's in our ability to live up to what the Constitution says. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Lifesavingfood.com is one of the sponsors who you can access through my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You know, I don't know there's a lot more I can say here other than food storage makes a lot of sense. In good times, in bad times, in times where the good times may turn to bad times, it especially makes sense. Right now, anything you see on the website is in stock the prices will only go higher, as is true with just about everything in your life. So if you were thinking about, uh, well, eventually we're going to get around to putting away some food storage, now is really the best time to do it. Lifesavingfood.com can get you started on that journey or further you on a journey that you may already have begun long ago. Very proud to have them as a sponsor. Please consider giving them your business. Matt Rowe 
in talking about uh, the convention of the states, makes a strong case that any deficiency in the Constitution is in our national character, not in the document itself. He says, during the 1787 convention, James Madison remarked, the people were in fact the fountain of all power, and by resorting to them, all difficulties were got over. They could alter constitutions as they pleased. Now, he says, please also keep in mind that the founders had to sell the outcome of the convention to the public at large to get the Constitution ratified. And the same is required for a modern convention of states. Now, today, our nation is so evenly split, politically speaking, that practically anything could result. Since both political sides participate in the convention of states, the progressives could actually carry the day with the support of the far left, the mainstream media, and big tech money. And I love this point. Just imagine the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, or Mitt Romney participating in a convention of states. Matt Rowe says, We have laws in a U.S. Constitution that's concise and clearly understandable if one takes the time to learn it. We're talking about an incredibly well-thought-out document that combines multiple sovereign states into one republic while limiting government and maximizing liberty. Now, I would point out that uh, those little republics, the states, do not lose their individual identities. So just in case anybody's thinking too consolidationist on this, there are just certain areas where their interests overlap, and that's what the Constitution addresses in calling the federal government into existence. But he points out today these laws and the original intent of the constitutional principles are simply not enforced or observed. So what makes anyone think that new amendments would really do any better unless they favored the left? An Article 5 Convention of States is not the tool to fix the ignorance and corruption that ail this country. Any attempt at any sort of quick change is the opportunity for things to go very wrong. The only other quick answer is a risky and very costly civil war that would most likely leave us worse off than we ever imagined. Instead, we must take the harder and slower road to get our country and our fellow citizens back on the constitutional foundation. And he has some suggestions that very specifically address this. We must address the lack of Judeo-Christian morals and education. A lack the founders knew was the only way their new country could fall from within. Oh, I'm sure they were anticipating Drag Queen Story Hour, don't you think? What? No? All right, point taken. Secondly, he says we must ensure that we teach our citizens what the U.S. Constitution actually says, why it says that, and how it works. We must vote against and actively oppose political ideas that do not fit within the scope of our Constitution. We must hold politicians, government functionaries, and their suitors accountable for misdeeds. Lockdowners, that means you. We must take the golden eggs out of serving in Congress. No more millionaires clubs. We must remove power from the federal agencies that regularly overstep their authority for lack of oversight and statutory limitations. We must work to return power to the states and ultimately to the people. If we do not do all this, well, then he says it doesn't matter what a convention of states produces. No one will abide by whatever they don't agree with and will simply find precedents and interpretations that ignore the spirit of the amendments to suit their needs. Again, this is Matt Rowe against the Convention of the States. I've got a link in the show notes. You don't have to agree, but I, I'm going to tell you, I, I tend to lean toward what he's saying here. 
Mitt Romney, you know he would be front and center at a convention of the states. Would you really trust this guy? I know I wouldn't. Okay, one final note. Of all the things that we take for granted, the ease with which we access our food is very likely at the top of the list. I know this is going to sound very doomish to say, but I think we're all going to have a much better understanding of how food gets from the farm to our plates by this time next year. And I don't mean that it's going to be an easy, you know, kind of education. Oh, just a little epiphany that I had. Why isn't that interesting? Robert E. Wright, writing for the foundation, I'm sorry, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, counsels that this is a good time to grow a victory garden and learn how to produce more of your own food. In fact, he says every American who can plant a liberty garden this year should do so, akin to the victory gardens planted during the World Wars. Liberty gardens increase production of healthy foods in uncertain times, rendering individuals less dependent on markets that governments may distort deliberately or out of simple stupidity. He says the last few years have been crazy and could get worse, much worse. Perhaps all will return to normal and your thumb will prove more brown than green, but all that will have been wasted is a little of your time and money. In another scenario, even modest garden produce, perhaps combined with wild game meat, will help you and yours to survive next winter. If prices continue to rise, and he says my call for private cost of living allowances goes unheeded, increasing numbers of America will face of Americans rather will face difficult choices between buying food, gasoline, or home heating oil. Few people can produce their own fuel, but many can grow some delicious, nutritious fruits and veggies in their own yards and window boxes. Now, given that this is a major election year, another risk looms, and that is of price controls. In the early 1970s, the Nixon administration, which was a Republican administration, tried to combat inflation with price caps, which predictably led to widespread shortages of everything but money. If Republicans half a century ago were daft enough to mandate prices, you better believe Democrats today will not hesitate to do so if they think it will garner them a single net vote. You might have to wait in line at the pump, but at least with a little patience and effort, you can chomp on a carrot from your own garden while waiting to return home. Other policies might also impede the free flow of food from where it's relatively abundant to where it's relatively scarce. Somebody might sneeze in Kalamazoo, setting off a wave of lockdowns. Some environmentalist in power might conclude the costs of allowing food shipments might exceed their benefits and force us into locavorism even if that means some individuals have to suffer for the benefit of all. In 2019, such policies would have been rightly ridiculed as outrageous, but today, it seems outrageous not to mention that they lay well within the Overton window. And lest anyone forget, the 20th century witnessed numerous policy-induced famines, including one in Ukraine in 1932-1933 called the Holodomor, hunger extermination in Ukraine, and another in China, 1958 to 1960, misleadingly called the Great Leap Forward. Millions of people died in the former, tens of millions in the latter. Huge numbers of Ethiopians and Cambodians also succumbed to hunger and disease at the hands of their own governments. And once again, China is starving millions in the pursuit of unattainable policy goals by locking them down in their apartments. Now, he says, as I've explained elsewhere, some government policies have proven themselves far deadlier than accidents or natural catastrophes. 
But unlike the 600 poor saps in Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, which is set in Crimea, by the way, with no choice but to do or and die, Americans still have some room to adapt to policy and a, a policy uncertainty, rather, and frankly, policy stupidity. So he says, unfortunately, I can't dispense useful, specific gardening advice to readers because circumstances will vary widely over latitude, climate, soil quality, land availability, dietary desires, and gardening skill. But Robert E. Wright says many blogs, books, and online videos can help individuals to judge what's best to plant, keeping in mind that most Americans will be able to trade local knowledge as well as ripe produce with neighbors regardless of the state of the world. And the same sources can also provide tips on how to best store food, even without a steady flow of electrons to freezers and fridges. Yes, it's the 21st century, but governments are still governments, and hence able to inflict great harm on their citizens, knowingly or not, through war and other disastrous policies like inflation, price controls, and Green New Deals. Now, he says, maybe America has hit rock bottom and the current travails will induce a return to limited government. But until then... He says, I suggest that you remove the rocks from your own garden and plant yourself some liberty this spring, summer, and fall. I don't have words to describe the urgency that I feel in sharing this message with you. I don't think it's just a good suggestion. I don't think this is just like, ah, make a nice pastime too. I think this is like essential, extremely important. Please don't ignore it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.